His word is clear. Our Father God, as we come now to your word, we pray that we would be changed and shaped by that word, encouraged, motivated, and given a fresh assurance of what a firm foundation uh, we can find in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, do be seated. Welcome again to College Church. It's great to be with you today. We're looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 1, as we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 1, verse 1. I think this will be the last week we're studying this verse. <laughs> Let's hear God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There was a a thin, wiry-looking man who uh, was wearing just a plain white shirt and uh, black uh, trousers or pants, and he was clutching an untidy-looking bag, probably of shopping, it seemed, in one hand. And this man, thin, wiry, calmly walks in front of a massive line of military tanks. And uh, so the lead tank halts seconds away from running him over, and you can see it on the video, a sort of puff of angry diesel smoke. And then there's a momentary pause while this, this poor driver in this lead tank is trying to figure out what to do. And uh, a great line of tanks behind him. And so they decide to just go round the other way. And so the whole column tries to pour around this sort of thin, wiry-looking man with his small bag of shopping. But the tank man, as he has become known to history, once again just steps in front of the lead tank. And, and then again and again. <laughs> Famous image. I mean, 24 years later, that moment, uh, which was captured secretly, I think, from a hotel room and then smuggled out at the time, uh, had to be done that way, and then broadcast around the world. It still symbolizes raw human courage, whatever the complexities may have been of the original situation. Now, my friends, you see, to stand in front of such Uh, opposition of whatever kind, to stand in front of the tank of human repression or abuse or dictators of the body, mind, and soul, we are told today that what we need is no authority at all, but actually the reverse is the case. What we need is the right kind of authority. We need higher principles, which will give us the internal motivation and confidence to stand up and be counted To defeat demonic evil, we need the sword of the Spirit. And so, in similar vein, I think it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Russian critic of totalitarianism, in his Nobel Prize winning speech at the end said, One word of truth outweighs the whole world. Speaking to this this issue of, of principle, outweighing brute force. Now, uh, you know, nothing could be more relevant to us today, and we already prayed about the news, didn't we? 
What is it that will counter all these many issues in our world today? Now, I think that if uh, the Apostle Paul had listened to that uh, famous Nobel Prize-winning speech by Solzhenitsyn, and uh, if Solzhenitsyn had meant God's word of truth, then I believe that Paul would, in that vein, have agreed. After all, think of Paul's life that we uh, told the story of a couple of weeks ago. Paul preached before mass and angry crowds wanting to kill him. He stood up before religious authorities wanting to expel him. He left home for the dangers of mission and sometimes really um, frightening situations, I'm sure he felt. All because he knew the difference between the power of Rome, the power of Jerusalem, and the authority of Jesus' word and was governed by higher principles. And so it was not just a game of force, it was a game of truth. The trouble, though, we face, though I'm sure we're all singing in applause to such sentiments, the trouble, though, that we face today is that uh, we live because of the um, uh, generations of criticism that the Bible has received in higher echelons of study, we live in a day when uh, you could say uh, that the theme of the book of Judges is true. There is no king and everyone does as they see fit. Where do we find such truth? Where do we find such authority that is good? Uh, For us, authority is more represented by the principle in Ferris Bueller's day off than by God's word. Ridiculous. And uh, it's understandable why. I think Brevard Childs, the the well-known scholar, said once that in his day, the standard technique at universities was to burn away the student's confidence in God's Word by the acid of higher criticism. Um, Not LSD, sulfuric acid, uh, though that may be true as well, I, I don't know. Of course, postmodernism has uh, gone one further step down the road. The result now is that uh, there are these common mantras that probably you've heard in Bible studies or in discussions about the truth in the Bible. For instance, uh, it is all a matter of interpretation. Well, of course, what that means is that there is no real authority if it's all a matter of interpretation. Or also, quite commonly these days, well, that is Paul's opinion, uh, Paul, who is rather caricatured as a misogynist, that's, that's Paul's opinion, but Jesus is who I, that's the one I follow. And so we exist these days, don't we, in a situation where authority is not much found in the Bible anymore, but in personal feelings, preference. It's a matter of interpretation. What I think, what I feel And if we do look to any kind of religious authority, we tend to look in places outside the Bible that's been so undermined. We look to church tradition uh, or various sort of religious ceremonies or clerical clothes and all this sort of stuff, candles and the like. Anything that feels ancient, you know, whatever, it sort of has legitimacy to it because we cannot find authority. We're looking elsewhere for some semblance of bigger reality than this passing moment. And we, we sort of scramble around to put at anything we can find. Now, of course, as you know and I know, there are legitimate discussion areas about how we interpret the Bible, and we could talk about that at length. There's a whole science of that, uh, which is... Um, 
hermeneutics. But to claim more certain authority can be found tradition, in tradition or feelings or even contemporary scholarship, as one who spends a fair amount of time reading books of contemporary scholars and may even contributed in some small way. But to find certain authority there rather than Scripture is seriously wrong-headed, you know, saying it's all a matter of interpretation. I mean, what could be more a matter of interpretation than the innumerable church councils and synods down through the millennia who have strayed and disagreed? Surely that's a matter of interpretation. What could be more a matter of interpretation than my individual feelings, your individual feelings? that are not only at times indecipherable, but even if, you know, after years of therapy with a Freudian psychoanalyst can still be difficult to discern and change anyway with the weather and with what you had for breakfast. And, you know, to be honest, what could be more a matter of interpretation than the findings of, you know, modern scholarship? Scholars who happily disagree among themselves to infinity and beyond, to quote um, Buzz Lightyear. You know, journals and conferences. Again, I contribute to such things. But to find your ultimate locus of authority there rather than here is all a matter of interpretation. Yeah, including it's all a matter of interpretation. And so we become like people in a gale, abandoning the safety of a ship to sort of try and Swim in the tossing waves beneath, like people detecting water seeping through the walls of a basement, deciding to have no foundation at all next year. We lack God's good authority in the Bible these days, and so we default to individual personal preference, what I feel, what I want, what I decide. And as there is no accounting for taste, such matters of individual preference end up dividing us along personal individual lines, or as is very often the case, tribal lines. For there is no king, and we do as we see fit. And such uh, self-choices damage others, and they damage ourselves. So what is my goal this morning? My goal this morning is to explain, and I want you to pray for me as we do this, for I think there, is, there are a few more important topics that we could be addressing My goal this morning is to explain the foundational, majestic authority of Scripture that goes ultimately back to the authority of God Himself. And to do that in such a way that that authority of God then shapes our lives, our families, our decisions, our choices. Of course, the focal point here is the writings of Paul, which are equally the Word of God. I want us to learn to go to the Bible, the whole Bible, not our selected favorite bits, but the whole Bible for the answer, to read the Bible regularly and to believe it, accept its word for our lives. Even that means submitting to God in an area where we would rather rebel, not just brush it off as, oh, that's someone's interpretation. It's a matter of interpretation. Or, oh, that's, that's Paul, but I can't find Jesus saying that. <laughs> so I can leave that to one side. Now, I'm not advocating a naive, pre-critical approach, if you know that way of talking. But I'm trying to explain how intelligent men and women today can be set free by God and His beautiful authority.
You see, I believe as we study these things together, there actually will be right now people here who are facing choices in their lives about which the Bible speaks. And such choices I want to be framed by God's Word for the sake of their families, their friends, their ministries. And I want us all then to follow God and His Word, follow that and find safety. Now, Paul establishes this authority of God in his word by three foundation stones in this verse, and they are first servants. That's the first foundation stone in this uh, verse. So he says, Paul's servant, can you see, of Christ Jesus. Now, when he says servant, as the footnote in your Bible may explain, he literally means slave. Paul is a slave of Jesus. Now, what on earth does Paul mean by that? Slave of Jesus. Well, he means something quite different from our usual understanding of slavery today. You see, in the Old Testament, the world that Paul would have been referencing, there were no prisons. There was no jail in the Old Testament. They did not incarcerate convicted felons. Terrorists were not put in jail. Prison for war criminals was slavery. And so 19th century Scottish minister Andrew Bonar's commentary on Leviticus also explains that slavery was typological, that it's a type or shadow pointing to the light of Christ. And so when in Leviticus it says that slavery is for the ages, literally, it means it's a message fulfilled in the age of Christ who set slaves or captives free. Furthermore, the word slave actually is part of a whole biblical worldview so foreign to us where everyone is a slave of someone. And so if you trace the use of that word, both in the Greek translation and the Hebrew, you'll find particularly in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, there's an often-repeated word, slave, and it describes David as he relates to Saul. David is Saul's slave, but who is Saul the servant of? And there's this question hanging out there of who is the real master and who is really serving this master. Now, now, my friends, this means that the application here is more than, you know, a sort of Bob Dylan song, you know, got to serve somebody. It means a little more than that. The application here is not that we must all serve Jesus, though that, of course, is true. Let me illustrate Paul's point this this way. Perhaps you heard of the movie Gladiator. And uh, in that movie, the general is treacherously killed, and his slave, the gladiator, fights in the circus and aims to set himself and others free. And what gives the gladiator moral power as he's doing that, apart from all the blood and muscle power, is that he is, uh, in a sense, not serving his own agenda. He is a servant, a slave, with another master who he is representing. Paul is saying something similar. Yes, he is an apostle, and he will mention that in a moment, but he doesn't begin that way. He begins saying he's a slave. And so the first foundation stone of authority is whose authority? Paul is a servant, a slave of Jesus. And so you can see right at the beginning of the book, he says a slave of Christ Jesus. If you turn with me to your Bibles right at the end of the book, Romans chapter 16, verse 27, he ends with Jesus Christ. And so the whole book is bookended beginning and end with Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, the inverse. 
So this letter is about Jesus. In fact, Paul's letter to the Romans is the gospel of Jesus. So Romans is not only purest gospel, as Martin Luther said, it is Paul's gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Paul. So in a sense, we're not really studying Paul as such. Oh no, this is Jesus' theology. Paul writes as Jesus' slave. He's the gladiator, not the general, the servant, not the master. Now let me just give you a couple of examples of that. I think it's going to be three, actually, which isn't strictly speaking a couple, but there you go. Uh, For instance, when Paul preaches the judgment of God, look at Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Oh, judgment, that sounds a very Pauline kind of emphasis. Romans 2, verse 16, he says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So there it is, it's his gospel, isn't it, pastor? He says, my gospel. Well, actually, that's Jesus' gospel, and that's, it's his in the sense that he's preaching it. He's owned it as his own, but it is Jesus' authority. So perhaps you remember uh, the uh, story in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, you've got to keep your lamp burning. Luke 12, verse 40, Jesus concludes, you also must be ready because the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Well, that's judgment. You don't like judgment, Paul says. I'm just the slave. Take it up with the Master. Or maybe you don't like the idea that we're all sinners, Again, that sounds very Pauline, doesn't it? Uh, We're all sinners. Romans 3, verse 10. Can you see that? He's quoting from the Old Testament. No one is righteous. And then he concludes, uh, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight because we're all sinners. What a Pauline emphasis. But actually, he's preaching Jesus' gospel. Perhaps you remember the story that Jesus told, uh, in, uh, that was told to Jesus and that Jesus responded to, the Tower of Siloam, where there was this disaster and many people died, and they came to Jesus and they said, well, are these people worse sinners than the rest because they died and we did not die? And what does Jesus reply? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, we're all sinners. Well, perhaps you don't like that idea, but it's Jesus' idea. Or the final of this, uh, these examples, Romans 1 verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, surely, if anything, justification by faith is a Pauline example, isn't it? Justification by faith, surely that's Paul's idea. Or maybe you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they both go up to the temple to pray. Well, which one was, uh, was heard? Well, Jesus responds. It's the one who is punching his own chest in angst and crying out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Justification by faith. You, you don't like that idea? Take it up with Jesus. It's not really Pauline. It's Jesus' ein. It's Jesus' message. Paul's preaching Jesus. How, how much more strongly could he put it? I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Could he say it any more strongly than that? Now, Romans is Jesus' word. 
you have an issue with this, take it up with the master. Paul is a slave. Christ Jesus is the master. Well then, let's look at the second foundation stone. Look down with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 again, my friends. Romans chapter 1. And I want us uh, to read it out because I think you're all going to sleep. Are you going to sleep? Do I need to get you to stand up and dance around? Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Will you read it out with me? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, my friends, nothing can be more important than the topic this morning. If you only hear one sermon, I want you to hear this one. You ready? If we don't get this right, we will have nothing right. We will have no missionaries. We'll have no preaching. We'll have no evangelism. We'll have no church. We must get this right. Now, will you listen with me about this then? The word apostle means sent one. I need to clarify what the word apostle means. Uh, signifies in the New Testament. It's going to take a little bit of work, but I want us to get it right. To clarify, in the New Testament, there are two categories of apostles. One category is the apostles of the churches. These were messengers, ambassadors, emissaries, missionaries sent by churches to run errands for them and to represent them at meetings, gatherings, and missionary opportunities. The equivalent word today for this is representative. We send our representatives to conferences, our missionaries represent us. These are apostles of the churches. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. Apostles of the churches. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers, literally apostles of the churches. That's one category of apostle. This meaning of apostle as messenger or representative of the church is also found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, literally apostle, and minister to my need. This type of apostle as basic representative of the church is, is part why then Paul can write in Romans 16, verse 7, Romans 16, verse 7, Andronicus and Junius are outstanding among the apostles. They are outstanding representatives of the churches. That's what he means by that. Missionaries, ambassadors, emissaries, messengers. Or Luke similarly writes about Barnabas and Paul, calling them both apostles in Acts 14, for they've both been sent out by the church in Antioch. They are therefore their, miss- their messengers, their emissaries, their missionaries, their representatives, apostles of the churches. In that sense, the apostles of the churches, are there still apostles today? Well, of course there are. If Epaphroditus was sent by the church at Philippi to take care of Paul's physical needs in prison, then some today coming to visit a shut-in at home sent by the deacons or deaconesses is performing an apostolic ministry, aren't they? They're being sent by the church as a representative of the church. However, normally apostle means not apostle of the churches, but apostle of Christ. So when Paul writes he is called to be an apostle, in Romans 1 verse 1, he is saying he's called to be an apostle of Christ. Now we know that Jesus himself called apostles in Matthew 10 verse 1, probably, and elsewhere in the Gospels, probably taking the word apostle from those that God sent in the Old Testament, for instance in 
2 Chronicles 36 verse 15 or Psalm 147 verse 15. God sent these messengers and Jesus takes that word and uses it of his apostles of Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 28 records God is appointing the church first apostles. Jesus appointed them, which is confirmed by Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. These apostles of Christ then have two necessary qualifications and one single overriding purpose. Two necessary qualifications. One, they're able to witness the risen Christ by having seen Jesus physically risen. Two, that they've been personally commissioned by Christ Jesus himself. And so in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are meeting to figure out how to replace Judas, what they do is they discern who is able to witness to the risen Christ and then ask Jesus to declare who he personally has commissioned of these options for this role. So they say, verse 22 of that chapter, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. That is one of the witnesses. And then verse 25, and you, Lord who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. So they're asking at that moment for God's sovereign intervention. That's the whole point there. It's not a justification for random selection. They believe that God's sovereign. They're asking Jesus directly to intervene to declare who he has chosen. So those two necessary qualifications and the overriding purpose of an apostle Christ was to lay the doctrinal foundation of the church. They did many things, but that was their overriding purpose. So Jesus commissions the apostles to write the New Testament. He says in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Not meaning there just that I will have illumination when I study the Bible and have a better sense of what it's saying, but primarily that these men that he apostled, that he sent, would be able to, were given by the spirit guidance into all the truth and to lay the foundation of the New Testament. And that means the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2 verse 20. And so as these apostles of Christ, of course, aged and came closer to dying in the normal course of events, their once-for-all-time foundation-laying role was emphasized in the later New Testament writings. So 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 2 urges us to remember the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, through your apostles that are written. Remember that. It literally, it's this before said word of the apostles. It's already been said. Remember it. Jews similarly, verse 17. Remember, beloved, the predictions, or literally the before said word of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The foundation has been laid. Only once is it laid, like any foundation. And so in that sense of the apostles of Christ, no one today has an apostolic ministry. There are no more apostles of Christ. Though, of course, we have our missionaries and representatives of the churches. Now, Paul viewed himself as this foundation-laying apostle of Christ. He saw the actual risen Jesus himself, and Jesus personally commissioned Paul. Now, he recognized, he said in 1 Corinthians, that he was last of all, that he saw Jesus. Jesus came to him as to one untimely born. He recognized that he was the least of the apostles thereby. 
Yet at that moment on the Damascus Road, Paul claims that Jesus, this is Acts 22, verse 21, he said to me, Jesus said to me, go for I will send you. Literally, I apostle you. Paul was apostled by Jesus himself. So when Paul here writes apostle in Romans 1, verse 1, he means apostle of Christ. Paul was personally commissioned by Christ as a witness of the risen Christ. Now let me illustrate the second foundation stone like this with this illustration. When the pirates of the Caribbean are outnumbered in combat, they have a parley. They send representatives to make arrangements and come to an agreement. Now imagine, my friends, if in a war situation someone walked up for a parley representing the general and said such and such and so and so. But their words were ignored because they were not the actual general himself. It's all a matter of interpretation, they said. You're not the master. I can ignore what you're trying to negotiate. Paul is not Jesus. But his written words here are Jesus's. Paul's writings do come with Paul's character, but they're fully breathed out by the Spirit at the same time. Now, I understand why someone might find Paul personally less attractive than Jesus. In fact, I'm pretty sure Paul would agree with that assessment. He called himself, didn't he, the chief of sinners? Doesn't sound like he was very high on his own personality. He was less than a nobody. He was a persecutor of the church, he felt. As we saw in the first in our series, Paul had all sorts of flaws And they only show us the unlimited patience of Jesus Christ. But what we may not say is this. We do not like what Paul wrote as an apostle, but we do like what Jesus said. That we may not say. In terms of authority, they are one and the same. What Paul writes is what Jesus told him to write. How much more strongly could he have put it? I am a slave of Jesus. Now, the Bible does distinguish between the actual words of Jesus spoken while physically here and the word of Jesus, which he fully speaks through his apostles and prophets. But this is a distinction of voice, not a distinction of authority. So we are to listen to Paul, the apostle's word, as we would listen to Jesus' parables, stories, and teachings. He has come with a parley, an apostle carrying a message directly from the lips of Jesus, servant, not general, sent, not self-started. Well, the third and final foundation stone is set apart. Paul is not self-selected. He is set apart for this gospel of God, the melodic line of the whole Romans whose first note we played last week. To be set apart means a boundary has been placed between Paul and others, a distinction, a difference. And the phrase specifically refers to Paul's personal experience at the beginning of his calling in Antioch, in Antioch, in Acts 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So as they were worshiping God and fasting, they were in worship together, And it seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit, as the disciples later describe a similar experience in different circumstances in Acts 15, verse 28, to set apart Saul and Barnabas for a particular ministry. And when Paul later 
a little bit later, reflected on this, he also realized that God set him apart before he was born, Galatians 1 verse 15. Now, let me illustrate this foundation stone, the three foundation stones, servant, apostle, set apart. Set apart. Let me illustrate this by referring to a TV show called The Unit about a special forces elite group. Paul is saying that he has been selected by God for a special mission. This may sound a bit like that horrible feeling at junior high when everyone else was selected for the team and you were the last to be picked. Well, Paul is saying that he has been chosen. He did not choose himself, but he has been selected. He has been set apart. God chose him for this role of laying the authoritative doctrinal foundation for the church through writing Scripture. I am not Paul. Nor are you. He was set apart in a sense in which I have not been, and nor have you, nor anyone else since. Now, of course, the Spirit is still mightily at work, praise God. And I believe that with all my heart, or else I would not dare preach. I said to myself as I stepped into the pulpit this morning, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I'm praying that the Spirit would prophetically apply God's Word to your heart today. But I'm not preaching my word. I'm not preaching another word. I'm not preaching a new word. I'm preaching this word, and I'm preaching his word. I'm preaching it to you. It's not my opinion. I hide behind the word with all my might. Seeking to draw out at nothing but what is here from the servant, the apostle, the set apart for the gospel of God. I want you to have the confidence, therefore, this morning, the renewed confidence that comes from clarity about the authority of God in his word. Why? So you can stand up at school in a meeting with a sheer chutzpah to confront culture, peer group pressure, angry mobs. Sexual temptation? Boredom? Disappointment? Discouragement? And know this morning that your life, individually, you, your life has meaning, purpose, And that this vague mist of existence that we all experience has a higher significance and a far horizon to which you are destined. That your life is designed for something by someone and that every breath you take will be accountable to him. That you are a sinner. That naturally you are under the judgment of God. That no one but no one can in their own goodness be saved. But that in Christ, by sheer grace, through faith alone, you can stand without condemnation, free, joyful, at peace, alive. Alive. Not bored. Alive. Alive. 
I want you to have that confidence that goes beyond the mere repeating the same old things over and over again, that confidence that comes, can come only from the authority of God and His Word to actually oppose the evil of our day. To love the homeless. The homeless. To spend your life for something that matters. Not just making another dollar another day. Something that matters. Because you know that there is someone who catches every tear spent for him in his bottle. Who shepherds you like a good shepherd who knows you better than you know yourself. And all this, all of this, and much more, is at stake when we consider the authority of God in His Word. Only with that in place can we ever again have a Martin Luther say, here I stand, I can do no other. We do not need more high church, more low church, different shaped worship pews, unusually colored bulletins. We need, my friends, the risen Christ to speak through His authoritative Word by His Holy Spirit to humble the proud, lift up the heads of the discouraged, heal the sick, and raise those dead in sin. Now, will you pray this morning for for those who feel they have no such Word? Who feel they have no authoritative Word and their ship is adrift on the sea of uncertainty? And a face of some challenge or other, and rather than asking what does the Bible say about this, just assume the Bible says nothing about it, or if it does, it's out of date or old-fashioned or irrelevant. When if we actually study the Bible and take it seriously, nine times out of ten, most of the time, the answer to our questions are right there in front of us in Scripture. Every time I have a question with which I'm faced, I've made a habit of making sure before I try and answer it, a difficult question, I actually read through a portion of the Scripture with that question in my mind, and see whether the Bible actually says anything about it. Very often I find it does. It is authoritative, it is sufficient for salvation and godliness. Now, obviously the Bible does not tell us how to do maths or how to fly to the moon or how to construct a good football plan for the next game, but for what it was intended, the kingdom of God, the building of the church, gospel outreach, godliness... What I call 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says it all. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Not some good works, every, every good work. And therefore thoroughly equipped. And perhaps that's why you don't feel equipped this morning. You're looking for authority outside of the Word. Now, of course, people will say to you as you go home today, and you mentioned the sermon is about the authority of the Bible, that holding on to this is authoritative, they will say, will imprison you and bind you, and you need to be liberated from it. But actually, this Word, if we are enslaved to Jesus, actually it will set us free. For the only solution to bad authority is not no authority. That's a vacuum which is rapidly filled with evil authorities, but God's authority. And we need that authority, God's, 
to be able to oppose all the false ideologies and manipulative human-driven philosophies in the world, the authority that is God's and God's alone. We cannot stand against totalitarian regimes unless we have an authoritative word. We cannot walk through life without a word from God. But we have one. Yeah, here it is. A word from your living Lord who loves you, gave himself for you, walks by you through the most difficult of times, speaks a word to you in season, a sufficient word, the word of God, the authority of Jesus Christ, of God himself. This is written by a servant, an apostle, who is set apart. And therefore it comes to the authority of God himself, not my authority, God's authority, And it is your safety, your treasure, your precious sweetness. It's it's honey on your tongue. It's life for your old bones. It's a boundary for your youthful zeal. It's a rescue plan to bring you up from the deep. How am I going to survive this next week? Here it is. It's a ladder out of the pits. It's all, all here. So will you this week take, eat, and become strong again in God? Let's pray together. Father God, this morning I pray that the hungry would be fed and the humble lifted high, and all souls would rejoice in the glories of the Lord. And I pray this in his name. Amen.